I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, this is Naomi Kalachand from the Genomics England podcast, The G Word. Join us every fortnight as we cover everything from the latest in cutting-edge genomics research to real-life stories from people affected by rare conditions and cancer. Each week, we'll bring you an extraordinary lineup of guests, not to mention we also have a back catalogue for you to choose from. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. It's February, so you know what that means. It's almost Rare Disease Day on the last day of February, the rarest day of the year, especially this year on a leap year. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see all of your photos from across the world celebrating that day. February is also celebrating National Heart Month. So in honor of that, I'm releasing today's episode with a dad and an author. He authored a book called More Than We Expected, Five Years with a Remarkable Child. It's a deeply moving book. It's a testament to the strength found in vulnerability, the importance of community, and the boundless love that families share in the face of adversity. Please enjoy my conversation with James Robinson. Hi, James. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. And a huge congratulations right off the top. Your beautiful book called More Than We Expected actually comes out today. Uh, what is the date right now? Tuesday, Tuesday, November 7th. So by the time everyone hears this episode, they're going to be able to go and purchase this book at their local bookstore or online. And I can't wait for all of you to read it. That's great. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, it's been quite a journey. Okay. Well, James, how, can you give us a little introduction about your family? And can you share with us uh, some of the reasons that inspired you to write this book more than we expected? Yeah, definitely. Um, so my wife and I have uh, three sons, um, one of whom is now 16, another one who is um, 12, and the 12-year-old um, has a twin named Nadav, who obviously was born at the same time um, with a congenital heart defect. Um, it stemmed from an issue called heterotaxy and died seven years ago uh, at the age of five. And the book that I've written is a memoir. It's the story of our years together um, and why it was such a privilege to be his father. It's kind of weird. I feel like I had a chance to read your book and I feel like those boys in my mind are still like those little boys. So it's weird to hear you call them teenagers. It's weird for me as well. That, that's a different that's a different <laughs> book. <laughs> I haven't written that one yet. Oh, oh, my gosh. Well, how did writing more than we expected impact your healing process after your son died? It's funny. He had a, he had a pretty remarkable life. The journey was really amazing. Like I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, except for the end. But when he died, I just sort of felt this like tug to write about it. I work at the New York Times. I'm actually not a journalist. I, I work uh, behind the scenes a little bit. But right after he died, we took a road trip um, across the US. I'd never really seen the country and I just needed to get out um, of our house and, and just sort of feel the, feel the relief of the open road. Um, and when my colleagues found out that I was writing, uh, when I was, that we were gonna plan this road trip, they, they encouraged me to write about it. Um, so I wrote an essay based on a road trip that was actually published to the Times, which was its own thrill in the travel section. And one of the things about that experience was that a lot of people wrote in and talked about how they had gone through similar things and actually coped with it in very similar ways. Um, and I started to realize that sharing our story um, was valuable to other people, um, not because there was anything special in our experience, but sort of it gave them permission to express how they felt and 
and started a conversation that was very gratifying to me. Um, and so after that was published, I started just after work each night, I would sit down and I'd read a thousand words about a particular topic of things um, that we had been through. Um, things like faith and anatomy or food or music. And I just needed to get like all the stuff out of my brain <laughs> in, part, in, part, in part because it was really um, it was really haunting me or it threatened to haunt me if I just sort of had to like keep it alive inside my own mind by repeating it over and over again. So, so getting it on paper was, was kind of a relief. And also I wanted to leave something tangible for his brothers so that they had known, so that they would know what we had been through and how I dealt with it. When Nanab was born, the hardest thing for me um, was trying to cope with the knowledge that I might outlive him. Um, he was diagnosed in utero and my greatest fear um, when he was born that someday I'd have to tell his brothers that he had died. And that was really the one thing I feared most of all. But by the time he died five years later, I was able to tell them. In many ways, the story is, is partly about like how I found the strength and I wanted his brothers to know that from my perspective. And then last of all, there is something about sharing our story with others that, that I find really gratifying. Um, not only does it sort of keep Nadav in the line, in, alive in the world, he gets to meet people like you who we never met while he was alive, or you get to meet him at the very least. But also, uh, you know, everybody has a story, I've found. Um, and often I'll just talk to strangers and they'll say, how many kids do you have? And I'll say three and they'll sort of say, how old are they? And I'll say 16 and 12 and that math doesn't add up. And and so I'll take the opportunity to like explain, like one of them died. And it, in my mind, it's not a tragedy, although it's it's quite a sad thing. And, and here's why. And And that often leads to really profound conversations with people who have been through maybe not losing a child, but, but similar traumas and, and gives them permission to share it as well. And hopefully, you know, my book does all of those things. Um, if I've done it right, like you might shed a tear or two, but but at the same time, it's sort of, there's an uplifting message in there about, about you know, the nature of, of what it means to live and what it means to live in, through challenges and, and how that can be a privilege as well as kind of a disaster. Yeah, it's all so beautiful. There's just so much to talk about with your book and so much of it resonated with me uh, just as obviously someone who helps people tell their stories and provides a place for people to convene and do that. And I know the power in storytelling. I see it every day, but especially your thoughts on caring for Nadav. Like it really reminded me of my friend Al Friedman, especially because he now speaks openly all over the place about what a privilege it was to care for Jack and how one day those things about it being like this chronic stress and this, you know, terrifying and terrible situation just became a very honed in live in the present moment. And I get to care for the most beautiful person on the planet and how lucky am I that I get to be around someone who loves unconditionally. And it really just made me think of that dynamic so much. Yeah, I mean, caring for him is part of it, certainly. Um, there, there's a certain part of your identity that's wrapped up in, in doing these kind of things that other people might find heroic, but when you're in that situation, it's just the things that you do. Um, but I think it's like a little more than that in, in my circumstance, at least. When the embryo is first formed, um, it's perfectly symmetrical. And on the outside of the embryo are these tiny little hairs called cilia, which actually likes, you know, they're, um, if you've ever looked at a, through a microscope in the 10th grade at like amoebas and paramecians or like little hairs on the outside, well, embryos have that as well. And their function is to swirl the amniotic fluid around in a certain way, which dictates how the proteins are laid out and how your body forms, right? And if the cilia are beating the opposite direction, everything is reversed and you're born with a mirror image of your organs. It's called cytosynderosis. It's relatively common, about one in 10,000 people have it. You might not ever know it unless you have the reason to like inspect inside of your body for medical condition. But if the cilia aren't beating quite right, the am amniotic fluid is a little haphazard and the organs don't form quite correctly. And that's what happened to Nadav. Um, he had a, a genetic condition called PCD, which meant that the cilia didn't function properly, the amniotic flu fluid didn't swirl properly, and the organs didn't quite form properly. Now that, when you think about it, is just so utterly amazing that when you are, you know, just an embryo, that this actually happens to determine how your body's going to form. It takes place in about three hours. In time for a dinner and a movie, you know, your fate is sealed. And the fact that that his body sort of revealed these unknown like machinations of how the body formed was just so mind blowing for me. It is something that we will, you know, scientists may understand it to a certain point, but the truth behind it all is is hidden to us. And so there's a simultaneously, si simultaneous terror of coming up face to face with the unknown, like, will my child live? 
but it's paired with like this awe of the unknown. There are things that we will never understand that are just profoundly amazing. And it's really centered around how the body forms and heals. Not just when you're growing as an, as an embryo and then into a fetus or as a child, but also as a patient, your body finds ways to compensate for the condition and actually tries to address it, which I find just really, really, really amazing. And so the privilege of his life was not just caring for him. It was having your eyes open to sort of like these at once awesome and terrible, you know, unknowns that, that hopefully we never have to face, but ultimately we all do. It really is. I can think of another rare disorder that ha highly has to deal with the cilia and how it impacts how it impacts their patients. And it's wild to think that those microscopic little hairs have so much control. Yeah. Yeah. I find our relationship with knowledge as a coping mechanism is significant, isn't it? Yes. But there's a limit to what you can know. The even if you're the, the, the most expert doctors, there are things that they don't know. And you just have to kind of accept that at the end of the day. Totally, totally. How did that sort of epiphany, I guess, if you will, sort of change the way that you approached being Nadav's dad? It didn't change it in the moment because you always want to exert as much control as you can over the situation. You want to bend the world to your will. You want to give them the best chance. But I do think the one way that it helped me as a father was when it came time to tell his brothers that he had died. And I realized that the reason that I feared it so much is that as a father, your job is to keep your family safe, it's to show them the world, but it's also to explain the world. And I realized that, that his death was something at the end of the day that I could not explain. It, it will always lie beyond, beyond our understanding, in my opinion. And so I didn't feel that pressure to, to explain it. I was at peace with the fact that it was inexplicable and unknown. And I think that's given me a certain peace, not complete peace with the fact of what happened, but, but it's helped me accept that, that his life was the life that he, he led. And that was a full life. When, when I held him in my arms when he died, I felt nothing but pride, nothing but pride. And I realized that as a parent, you live for those moments of pride, you know, seeing them take their first steps or their first words or, you know, graduate from high school or college or get married or have kids. Like those are the moments you live for. And in his life, we had as many moments of pride in his five years as many parents have in a lifetime. Uh, and that was a real gift. Um, and that came from, you know, certain acceptance that, that um, you know, we did the best we could and, and our ability to control the situation, you know, necessarily ends because we're human. I mean, James, what what do you think are some of the profound things that you put in place or thought through or figured out that got you to that place where you were holding him in your arms and felt that? We just saw so many miracles in his life. <laughs> like we were very, very lucky. Here was a kid who was stranded in the hospital halfway around the world without a medical reason to fly him home. No opportunity for surgery um, because he was in such bad shape. And he, he made it home. My almost not still spoiling the story, right? <laughs> By telling you that he, he made it back, he he recuperated, he eventually made it back to his house, and it was in part because of his inner strength. It was in part because of you know our efforts as his parents. It was in large part due to med amazing medical professionals who helped him every step of the way. And I'm not just talking about doctors and nurses, but also you know child life people and therapists, physical therapists, OTs, music therapists. Like we met. And when we were moved to another hospital, we met the chef at the hospital and made friends with them and they made sure he was fed, you know? And so I would answer that question as there's something about humanity, which is like terrifying because you know your limitations and you know there's something that you can't grasp. And yet having, being the parent of a child like this allows you to see humanity in, at its best in many ways, you know, in yourselves at times, you see yourself at your worst, obviously it brings out the worst in people too because it's a very, very hard thing to cope with, you know, the best in, in, in healing, which is what we saw in our son, and then the best of the people who are around us who, who helped us along the way um, in a very altruistic way, I might add. Um, that's kind of very humbling. Um, and it's also very human. And, and that, was, that was part of the privilege. I mean, it's just really so moving that that happened for you and that you recognized all the beauty that was in that really tragic, tragic moment. I think so many people can resonate with the fact of the people who become our family, the unexpected family members that we collect along the way, especially not just community members and neighbors and friends of friends, but the people behind the scenes like the janitors and, you know, the security in the hospital and just 
those types of people that we encounter in our lives that become a part of you know, our day to day. I'd love if you could share a personal story from one of those types of people that really made an impact for your family. Yeah, we spent so much time in hospitals that that we there were three major hospitals that we spent time in. There was a fourth, but but we didn't we were an outpatient there. But but Mount Sinai Hospital in New York was our home hospital. It's where he had his three surgeries, and then we were stranded for three months in Australia at the Children's Hospital Westmead, which is an amazing place. And then we we spent six months at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, which is also an amazing place in its own way. And I will share the story about about the chef because I think it is it is kind of kind of cool. We spent six months in Philadelphia, and in Australia, we had learned the importance of like being outside of the room. When Nadav was in critical condition in intensive care in Westmead, his doctor or the doctor in charge of the unit insisted on taking him outside. Um, of all things, while he was intubated and sedated, just so he could feel the fresh air. And it wasn't a palliative thing or a, or a pity thing. It was, he just thought it was important that the kids were outside, no matter how sick they were. And so he had this amazing gift of getting outside of this hospital. And and he watched his brothers play in the playground while he sat there, you know, felt the air in his, in his hair, which was fantastic. And when we went to Philadelphia, we took that to heart, you know, because he was able to recuperate there. He learned to walk again. Um, he, was, he was sort of back on his feet. I spent some time in a wheelchair, but 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 could walk around, and we we took that opportunity to explore the hospital. We would go down to the cafeteria. You know, he always when we started out, he liked pizza, so so we got pizza, and he always wanted oregano on it, and so we um, we kept on getting oregano, and then we discovered that as we got other things, he always wanted oregano on it, like that was his thing. So he had developed like this this sensitivity to strong flavors. He really wanted oregano on everything, which was kind of funny. And we pushed the limits of what we could do at, at CHOP. We explored every inch of the hospital, including a new wing that was under construction. We made friends with the security guards, to your point, and they let us go in and explore around, which was pretty cool. And then one day the child life person came to us and said, you know, we've done pretty much anything I can. we can. Like, is there any part of this hospital we haven't explored? And we came up with the kitchens, which are under the hospital, which you never get to see as a patient or a parent. And we say, can we see the kitchens? Because he's got this thing for food and, and smells. And can he go experience that? And she said that was a pretty good idea. So she made it, made it work. We went down in the service elevator and suddenly we're surrounded by you know, gigantic jars of spices, you know, his favorite spices and walk-in freezers and guys running around. And one of his friends from the pizza station was like, yo, oregano, you know, like he recognized him. So that was great. And my wife, who's incredible, started up a conversation with, with the head chef and said, you know, he's a really picky eater. And she said, oh yeah, what does he like to eat? And I was like, well, he likes, he likes lamb. And the chef was like, oh, we have lamb. We have a halal menu. And she said, what sort of lamb? And, and eventually, like it just came out and they started sending up custom orders for us. You know, we would just call up in the morning and say, can you send this up? And, and they would do it. And they didn't do it because we were VIPs or rich or famous or anything like that. They did it because we'd made that personal connection. And and you'll read in the book, I can't do it justice, about the note they sent us when he was discharged. But it was, you know, you don't you take it for granted. There's so many things you take for granted. One of the things you take for granted is it's just the role of food, you know, in healing. And and you get these anonymous trays from um, from the kitchen without really knowing who, who created it. And once you make that connection, you realize you know, the, the power that food can play in how we heal. Um, you know, those things are not really sought out or, or thought about enough. And, and one of my hopes in writing the book is that it helps medical professionals understand, you know, sort of some new ways in which they can care for, or not obvious ways, because I'm sure there are people doing it, in which you can care for children, like complicated children, sure, but, but they're kids. And part of caring for a kid is making sure they have healthy and nutritious meals, you know? And it's something about a home-cooked meal, which which you really miss when you're in the hospital. And if you can recreate that experience, it can't hurt. And yeah, so so we're kind of blessed to see that. Oh, I love that story so much. And it is such a good point that your book is such a resource for that ring of support to peer into the family dynamic and what parents and patients need beyond what you are taught that they need. Yeah, it's it's not all look. It's not all sunshine and roses. You know, yeah. it's really yeah. hard to go through this. It is really hard, and hopefully, I reflected some of that in the book as well. Yeah, I, there's there's silver linings to be found in these clouds, to be sure. It's just real quick, so I don't want to spoil the second like 
part of Australia and the ending of that because I want people to read this blockbuster moment. But just because we didn't really go over it, can you please explain going to Australia, your decision? I know Tali unfortunately has some regret around it and you got stuck there for a while. Can you kind of just go over that story a little bit for us? As I mentioned, my, my mother is, is Australian. My father's a New Zealander, which is not the same thing. So I hope our American listeners don't make that mistake. But um, but we also felt a very strong connection to Australia because I was very close to my grandparents. I was the first grandchild. My mother was actually the first child. And so every summer we would go back and spend winter in Australia um, as much as we could. And I would spend a lot of happy times with my, my grandparents. When our older son was born, we made a point when he was six months old of bringing him down to meet my grandfather. My grandmother, unfortunately, had passed on. But... My grandfather was still alive and we brought our older son down at six months old to meet him. And it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible to have your newborn meet his great grandfather. And one of the cool things about it was um, I looked at, at our six month old and I said, how incredible would this be to not just meet his kids, but meet his grandkids? <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? And that's that was like the gift we gave my grandfather is to meet his great grandkid, which I think is absolutely awesome. Um, and it was a really meaningful moment. So we have a lot of happy memories there. Although my grandfather had died right before the twins were born, we still, you know, we wanted to travel. We liked showing them the world, as I mentioned. And I had this opportunity to basically go down for a very little money. I was invited to speak at a conference um, in Australia. And I couldn't really pass it up. It's not the, the only reason we went, but, you know, it was a factor that suddenly we could fly, fly a family of five down down under for, the, for a single economy class fare. That's, that's a tough thing to pass up. Um, we consulted with his doctors when we had the opportunity, and they sort of hemmed and hawed a little bit and came back and said, you know, we think, we think you can go. Um, and I don't blame them for that decision at all. I think that was an educated professional opinion. And it also allowed for a certain deference to assess his parents, not just as his parents, but as like fellow medical experts, because as the immediate caretakers for him, we sort of got a crash course in cardiology. We knew him better than they did medically in some ways, I would argue, right? Like when we took his SATs, we knew when his SATs were good and when they weren't good. You know, when, when they did like the, the perfunctory, like check of the SATs in the, in the hospital every, every appointment, we kind of knew when it was low that it wasn't right. <laughs> You know, so we had this instinct, a medical instinct, I would add. There's a lot of ambiguity in medicine that they, they found valuable. And I really appreciated the fact that they included us, our perspective in these decisions. Um, we decided to go. We went down for two weeks. It was great. We saw kangaroos, we saw koalas. We met all my family members. They got to meet him. They wouldn't have met him otherwise. He met them. And uh, it was great. And one day when we were two days before we were supposed to go, we, we just noticed that he wasn't looking right. We sent a note to his cardiologist in New York and said, we sent a photo. She said, well, you should get him checked out. And that's when we found ourselves thrust into, you know, the Australian medical system with what was diagnosed as a clot in his circulation, which was quite dangerous um, because if the clot gets loose, it goes to the brain and, and bad things can happen. They tried to dissolve it with, with certain drugs and it didn't work. And they said, we have to do surgery. We met the surgeon who we'd never met before, the, the doctors we hadn't met before, they had a different way of doing things um, in this really unfamiliar place. Uh, and the surgery was 10 hours. I think he was on bypass for seven and a half hours. It was excruciating. He came out on ECMO and, um, and we were just grateful that he was alive, to be honest. Uh, and then had to deal with sort of this, this terrifying thing far from home, which I think was probably more terrifying for his brothers because they were even more out of the loop. We made a point of being honest with them as much as we could. That's the theme of the book too, about how do you tell the truth to kids who are actually more resilient than adults, I think, in a lot of situations. It's important you tell them the truth. But they were left kind of stranded with their parents, distracted, not knowing what was happening with their brother. Um, and that was the situation we found ourselves in, um, which in part of the story of the book is how we, how we found our way back. Yeah, you're going to have to read the book to know the rest of this Australia story. Oh, and the other kids. Yeah, you do mention that inner strength that we as parents discover when we're faced with these challenges. Um, it, it is such a theme in your book. So how, how did the strength manifest for you and Tally during all of this decision making and throughout your journey and then after an adopt death? It's not all strength. I mean, 
we're not any more, I don't think we're any more special than anybody else in this world. We're human. And if you're a parent of a kid, you, you're just sort of forced into a situation where you have to do it. There's no other choice, really. I mean, I guess there are, but they're not good choices. And so I guess the strength is, is just showing up, which is not really strength at all, because I think most humans have that capacity. And um, I ended up doing things that I never dreamed I would have to do that actually kind of disgusted me, to be honest with you. Like um, one of the tasks when we were discharged from the hospital after his first surgery, and he was just five days old when he had his first surgery. So to go home, we had to, teach, we had to learn how to put an NG tube in, which for those of you who don't know, I'm sure many of your listeners do know, it's a nasal gastric tube. And uh, he was underweight and they wanted to make sure that he got the calories he needed so, so he'd be able to thrive. And so we had to feed him, um, in addition to, um, to breast milk, we had to feed him overnight with an NG tube and a pump. And I had to learn how to put an NG tube down my son's nose into his stomach, right? Which is like the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard. Uh, but I did it because I had to do it. That was my job. And there was a way to do it. We had an amazing NP who taught us how to do it. I became very good at it. I think I've told you that that's like it's my secret talent is I can put an NG tube in a sleeping baby in the middle of the night without them waking up. It's a kind of useless <laughs> secret talent at the moment. But it's a self-reinforcing thing because when you manage to do that, you feel a sense of pride and that becomes part of your identity. And that's one of the ways in which being a caretaker for, for a sick kid is, you know, is it, it changes you, right? Because that becomes part of who you are. And when you lose that child, of course, that disappears, which is its own. Um, frustration. Um, I don't know, our relationship as, as parents, as husband and wife, I think was always pretty strong. We were never shy about about expressing our opinions, which at times you got a little heated as marriages tend to do. But I think, you know, we, we always respect each other's opinion and we always understood that we have very different ways of approaching the problem. My wife is an engineer. She's very logical. She's very numbers oriented. She would deal with that part of the of the hospital, and I would deal with more like the um, the getting stuff done and, and maybe a diplomat or an ambassador um, to to sort of grease the wheels to make sure that stuff happened. I guess it was kind of my role. Um, and so we kind of you know we lent on the things that made us fall in love in the first place and adapted to this new circumstance. We were chatting a little bit before we started recording about that NG tube part because uh, it just like it's seared into our brains for sure. And I know my husband's um, because you talk about the roles. Right. And most of the time it was me putting it in all day long because he would vomit up through his mouth. But then when my husband would come home, I made it his job because I just couldn't do it anymore. Right. And he couldn't even look at a photo of Ford with an NG tube for a couple years after that because it's just it seems like the smallest thing that we have to do for our kids but then yes you get so good at it and it is a sense of accomplishment but I think sometimes in those really really tough moments right in the beginning when you're kind of blazing through and trying to just figure it out man it just sears a few things into your brain that are you're just like what is is this real life yeah it is it is yeah it is unfortunately it is uh, hard truths is also something that is a theme in your book. What were some of the things that you realized that you had to let go of and how did you reconcile with that? Yeah, we tried to not let go of anything. Like even when we were stuck in Australia, we still tried to be there for his brothers. I, I would take our older son to like these soccer matches, um, which was like across the park from the hospital. We went to these soccer matches and, and tried to find some sort of normalcy. But at the end of the day, it is kind of pretense. I mean, your life is not normal as soon as you have a child diagnosed with a really complicated thing. Um, but we tried not to let go of, of much. You know, I mean, we, we tried to do all the things that, that we used to do. We discovered new things. I mean, I think even when you have a healthy child, there's things about them that you learn about them that surprise you. And, you know, you know, our older son doesn't like eating Ethiopian food. Like, who does? I do. But I'm not going to be able to enjoy that with him until he's at least probably 54, you know, um, the way things are going. But yeah, I think it's something about parenthood where you have to adapt to your kids and it's not always the way you want it to be. And you have to kind of meet them where they are and make that a happy thing. You know, we had to we had to let go of normal life as well, I guess. Um, sort of like, I don't know, everything kind of feels trivial when you go through something like this and you hang out with people who haven't. And, and that was something I was always careful about because I always felt that, that thinking about it in that way would lead to bitterness and affect my relationships with other friends. And to a certain extent, it did. But we were lucky to have very empathetic people who, who even if they didn't understand what we were going through, at least acknowledged it. 
um, and did their best. Yeah, it reminds me of your concept of the proper path, right? And and deviating from it and the profound observation that you have in, in realizing that, I don't know, just understanding destiny and predetermination. I don't know if there's such a thing. I don't know. Maybe it was. <laughs> Maybe it was predetermined, but it wasn't the path that I expected. I mean, the book is called More Than We Expected. Part of the joy of being a parent is seeing the wonder in the child's eyes. You know, like you see, see it for the first time like them interacting with things that we take for granted. And that's kind of what I, that's the first time I'm thinking about it. It's kind of what I felt, you know, being the dog's father, because I was able to look at the world with that sort of wonder again. And 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 that's kind of what I wanted to capture in the book is like the wonder of the things that we'd sort of taken for granted. I was granted that. And I I, I get that from, from all of our children. You know, maybe not as profound because it's quote unquote ordinary life, but that's part of the gift of being a parent, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I would argue that families who have a medically complex child do have a do have a, a different sort of luxury in being able to kind of enjoy those smaller things that maybe would go unnoticed otherwise. Yes, but it prevents you from enjoying, I think, a lot of things that other people get to yeah. enjoy too. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That's not that's not fun. And like I said, that threatens to lead to bitterness, and that's something I was trying to fight off. Not always successfully, I might add. All of us. Yeah, real life. <laughs> That's right. Could you describe that special sense of purpose that you felt as his dad and how it influenced your daily life and the choices that you made for your family then on? I think you start to think more about like what's possible, you know, right? Like we made sure that we did certain things because we wanted to enjoy them, but it wasn't. that sounds very palliative. That's not what I'm talking about. When, when the plan is to have three surgeries so that you have a chance at a transplant, right? That is a very unusual way of looking at the world, right? These were not cures, the surgeries that he went through. They were basically reorienting his body and co like contorting his body into all these weird configurations so that his circulation might work right temporarily. And that is very unnatural. And so there's a certain amount of, and hope is the wrong word. I don't think I use the word hope in, in the book at all, but but you're you, you are aiming for certain goals that are different than the ordinary goals. I think in a lot of ways it changed how I related to my career. You know, as, as an employee, it distracted me a little bit, which maybe not been such a bad thing, to be honest, at work, because I didn't care about my job in an emotional way. I was able to sort of like face it more rationally. And the emotional stuff I saved for my family and the situation that we were in. Um, I joke that I think I might be the only person in the company who's taken all four forms of leave available to us. Um, <laughs> paternity leave, uh, medical leave, bereavement leave, and book leave. <laughs> so I have the, the grand slam Book, of, leave, of book leave. leave was one of them? That's awesome. Well, I do work in a newspaper, so, so <laughs> they're a little more amenable to that. Although people in my department don't usually write books. That's another story. But I think, you know, it sort of like redirected my emotions towards the things that quote unquote mattered rather than things that didn't. But that's only part of the time and the times I, I would get as frustrated as anybody else by having to juggle all these things at once. Like I said, it wasn't a walk in the park and it was often quite difficult. And I was lucky to have a supportive workplace that, that helped us actively, you know, get through it. Um, not everybody does my, you know, I've heard of other people who haven't and that's, that's a shame. So, so yeah, we were very, very lucky to have, I know that not everybody has people around them to, to help them through it. We're lucky to have that. You had to make a lot of decisions uh, around his health and surgeries and everything. What sort of message would you leave for families who are grappling with whether or not they're making the right decisions medically and how to kind of think through that and what resources maybe helped you and Tally ultimately decide things? Yeah. I, I First of all, I don't have any advice for anybody else. I mean, all I can share is my own experience and, and people can take from that what, what it will. I will. I wouldn't presume to, to tell people, you know, do this or do that. I think the one thing that I discovered is like how much ambiguity exists in medicine, even amongst doctors. You know, one example of that, which is a minor example, but was kind of eye-opening, is um, Nadav was born without a spleen. And as such, he had to have amoxicillin um, for prevent pro prophylactic uh, antibiotic. And <laughs> the pharmacist could never agree on like how we should store it. Like one insisted that we had to keep it refrigerated. The other one was like, it doesn't really matter. The other one was like, yes, it's really important. Like they're always, and that was true of like all the medical advice or most of the medical advice that we got. There was always some ambiguity in it. And being at peace with like the ambiguity that there, 
maybe like better outcomes sometimes with certain things, but it's unpredictable and you never quite know because there are limits to our knowledge and our expertise and doctors can't predict the future. That informed a lot of how I approach decision-making because eventually what I came to learn was you just educate yourself as best you can about as much as you can know about a particular thing and then you have to basically go with your gut. And if something goes wrong, it's not your fault because you did the best you could at that time. And the, the, the worst thing about that is, you know, we're always advancing our medical knowledge. So even now, seven years after it died, doctors are making huge advances in patients like Nadav to understand whether the, the surgeries that he, that he underwent are really always appropriate. The third surgery he had was something called a Fontan, which basically redirects the, the blood coming from the lower half of the body um, directly into the lungs instead of going into the heart. You basically make the heart a pump for red blood and the blue blood goes directly into the lungs. And it turns out that a lot of that has to do with your lymphatic system, which people hadn't realized before. And so now they're starting, as far as I can tell, to do lymphatic screening of patients to see if they're candidates for the third surgery. Well, Nadav never had that. We never looked at his lymphatic system. And so now in retrospect, knowing now, you know, the kid with his lymphatic, should he have had that surgery? Well, maybe not. But we didn't know it at the time. And just because we know it now doesn't make it a bad decision at the time. I mean, when blue babies were first born, kids with the Dobbs condition, they used to just put their legs above their head and hope for the best <laughs> before they did heart surgeries. You know, and I actually think that he was sort of like born halfway through this arc of going from that to like just plugging a new heart and be done with it. And, you know, in 50 years, would he be healed for something like this? Would it be routine? Maybe. But you can't beat yourself up for being born when you were knowing what you know. That's my opinion. And so having comfort in that ambiguity, which I think, and I won't speak for doctors, but I think doctors wrestle with this as well, is a really big thing. And in fact, one of the things I felt worst about was not just that, that, that we had gone, made this decision and had a not ideal outcome, um, was that his doctors at Mount Sinai also sort of had to wrestle with that knowledge too. The decision they had helped make left him stranded. And I felt very bad for his doctors because I didn't blame them for that at all. They did the best that they could with the information they had too. And at times we found ourselves comforting, you know, some of the doctors involved in this care and assuring them that, that there was no blame. Because I don't think blame really achieves anything. I mean, when there's malpractice, I'm sure, like then blame is important because you can you can get compensation or whatever. Luckily, we never had that. But, but I think it's very easy to go through medical care, have a bad outcome, and blame, blame the people involved in the care when really they may not have been at fault. It might have just been a lack of information or a lack of knowledge. That's not to say that doctors are never at fault. That's not what I mean at all. Um, but I think the instinct is to like try to find blame, whether in yourself or externally. And I don't think that's maybe sometimes it's appropriate, but I don't think as a practice, it's really healthy or, or useful. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy thing to ultimately come to when you've faced, you know, the death of a child. I know how much work it probably took and just acceptance. And I, I love the part about how you were comforting each other um, and just realizing that everybody had done their best, uh, the best that they knew how at the time. But to still ultimately come to that sort of point of acceptance is a big deal. And I'm not sure even just like with the dynamic of a couple, if that's necessarily always even remotely easy to do with all of the pain that's coupled with it. Yeah. I mean, not only am I the father of a remarkable child or three remarkable children, I am husband to a remarkable wife who is really incredible. She came through really well. It sounds like a really great dynamic. Yeah. I mean, you'll see in the book, I mean, she opened my eyes to a lot of things about faith and acceptance that, that I had never really considered. So, How did the two of you really prepare for telling the boys? Like, I know that you had always been honest with them, but was there some sort of strategy that you had put in place or, you know, like, how did you communicate that difficult truth together once you had to? We just were honest. I mean, I don't know else to say it. We tried to be as honest as possible. We didn't sugarcoat things. We didn't like use euphemisms. We didn't play make believe or pretend that things weren't real. Like we just told them the whole way along what was going on. I mean, in age appropriate terms, certainly, but we wanted to be honest um, with them because I think the worst thing you can do for a child is, is to not tell them something and then their imaginations run wild. And that's no good. And um, when the time came to tell them, I, I told them. And I told them the truth. I said, your brother's died. That's all I could do is just tell them the truth. I mean, I couldn't explain it. And I didn't feel that I had to. Um, and there were things that we couldn't explain. And I would just say, we don't know why. And, and that's just the way it is. Um, but children are just incredibly, incredibly resilient. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. The, he, um, 
hopefully it's not spoiling the book to tell you actually went to kindergarten after we got back. Um, and his teacher, like by that point, he, he was on oxygen. He had an oxygen tank and a cannula. Um, and he was, he was not visibly, like you could tell that he was, he was, he wasn't well. Right. I mean, for us, he was remarkable because we'd seen him at his worst, but, but any normal person off the street, certainly the people at the school had never seen a child the sick, right? Um, with an with a nasal cannula. And his teacher, um, before he started school, this is kindergarten, um, sat the kids down and explained it to him, them, just really plainly. Like, this is your new classmate, Nadav. He has this thing in his nose. It gives him the oxygen he needs to breathe, right? And it's there to help him. And any adult who sees like a kid with a nasal cannula like probably freaks out because the implications of that are all negative, right? Like something must be wrong, right? Like it's a terrible thing. They don't, they're really flustered, I think. Even if they don't show it, people are probably like, how do I deal with this situation? Kids, if you explain it to them, they're like, oh, cool. That's a good thing. Like it gives him oxygen that he needs. That's great. And they forget about it. Right? Oh, it's just, it's so simple for them, right? It's just, it's so normal. And it's like, but it is the way you should look at it. It does help him. And I don't know, that's, there's something to be learned in that, I think. And just seeing that like dynamic was just really remarkable. And, and she sort of reinforced what we already knew is if you're honest with kids, they'll be able to cope with it because they're really strong. It does. It really just takes the pressure off all of a sudden, you know, like you, you kind of can marinate on things like that and worry and worry and worry. And then when you see it happen in real time with how the children actually process things and deal with things, you're just like, Whew, wow, I can't believe I spent so much time on that. Yeah. Your story does touch on the role of uh, Jewish faith and the culture. And I wonder how did, the, how did your family's faith influence any of the decisions that you made for Nadav and your family like during those really challenging times? That's interesting because faith was very complicated. Not that we doubted our faith. I mean, I think one of the things about about being Jewish for us is that it connected us to our past, right? It gave us a point of reference that, that we were part of a long like, line of, of generations and put us in that context. But I do think our, you know, the idea of faith was redefined a little bit along the way, or certainly my idea of faith. Not that I started doubting anything that I believed, you know, in terms of our religion, but it just opened our eyes to, to what faith really is. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about when we were stuck in Australia. He'd just come out, the dog had just come out of surgery and was on ECMO and was, was not, like, ECMO is not a good thing. I assume that people who have seen this know what ECMO is. It's a heart lung machine that basically keeps you alive in critical, really critical situations. And we were always taught to fear it because it's not a long-term thing. You really have to be off ECMO in like four or five days or things start turning really bad because the blood is actually circulating outside the body. And so when he uh, came out on ECMO, we kind of freaked out. We called his cardiologist in New York and we explained what was going on. And she said, well, I'm praying for you. And I knew that she was Hindu. And so I said, which gods are you praying to? <laughs> and she said, all of them. Like it was a full spectrum blast. And I said, well, if you could pick just one, right? Who would it be? And she said, Hanuman, who is the monkey god. And he is like a source of strength. And it's funny, if you Google Hanuman, you see all these images of him and he is actually holding his chest open. No joke. And I don't think it's why she said this, but he's holding his chest open with like blood dripping out. And inside are the two deities he's sworn to protect, Rama and Sita. And this for me like blew my mind because my son is in, is in the PICU with his chest open, right? Like on ECMO. And so I printed out a photo of Hanuman or a picture of it. And I put it above his bed. But I think the nurse is so kind of weird because they knew we were Jewish, but I'd like need any help we could get. Right? I, would, yep. I would take it. <laughs> and that night they tried to take him off ECMO. They had tried the night before to have it work. They took him off and then basically we just have to pull the cannulas because he's not like just a leap of faith, if you will. And his heart started ticking and he pulled through. And I don't know, Having Hanuman there helped, like it didn't hurt. It brought our cardiologist closer to us, right? Or closer to him, I think. Like that was a nice thing for us. But but speaking of faith, the day after he got up ECMO, I was ready to like go home and have a beer and just exhale. We'd been through so much in the past, you know, whatever, 
72 hours. And then the doctors are like, or nurse came over and she's like, well, we're going to have a family meeting. And that's never good. Like a family meeting is never good. And they sat us down and the guy who was in charge of the PICU, who we just met for the first time, his name was Nick, with a whole cast of characters behind him. Like the nurses, cardiologists, blah, 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 all behind him. Natalia and I sitting there on the couches with the tissues in front of us. And he said, I just have to be straight with you. Like Nadav is not doing well. He's got a fever and his white blood cells are spiking. And my heart sank. Like, we've been through this whole ECMO thing. I was ready to, like, just exhale. And now I've been told that, like, things are going wrong again. And I was just, like, shattered to a million pieces. He said, there's three things that could happen tonight. One is that he could get better. And that's not going to happen. I'm just going to tell you now. It's not going to happen. Two is that he could hold steady. And that's what we're hoping for. And three is that he could deteriorate. And if that case, if that's the case, there's nothing more we can do. And I was just like a puddle. Like I would, that was, I couldn't deal with that. But Tali was, I've told you, was remarkable and incredible in her own way. Sat like stock still, looked him right in the eye and said, so what you're saying is that it's up to him. And the doctor looked at her and was like, I suppose you're right. And she said, well, I can live with that because I trust him. And that was like a statement of faith more profound than I've ever experienced in a synagogue or religious ceremony or anything else. It was just like faith. It wasn't hope. It was faith. And that was really powerful for me. And that relates to what we were talking about earlier with like this idea of the unknown, right? Like how the body heals. Like there are things that you're not permitted to know. And that's also faith, right? How do you grapple with the things that you can't know? That was really, really powerful um, for me in the moment. And that was a faith that sort of carried me through a lot of stuff that happened after that. There is something about faith that brings people together, whether it's our shared Jewish faith or me Googling Hanuman and bringing our cardiologist into the hospital room from halfway around the world. And that, I think, is in some ways the best aspect of faith, whether it's the same faith or different faiths. Um, it is a point of connection and strength. And the book is not about religion, but it is in some ways about that aspect of faith. That, that it gives you strength in troubling times in ways that you might not expect. And that always felt very, very, very powerful. My gosh, that was so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And may all the gods bless them. <laughs> There's a lot of gods to go around. There are. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> always tell that story, and especially the one with Tali. That statement from her, I think, is universal uh, for families like ours and it's just so beautiful and I'm so grateful that you had that moment and that mindset. That was one of the worst moments of my life to be honest with you. I'm not grateful I had that moment. You know what? I guess I'm, I'm grateful that you like just had that sort of I don't know what it is that sense of pride over Tally or just like comfort in that she knew. I'm grateful that she was there and that's that's what it means right? I mean that's what it's about. So that's what I was grateful for, that she was at my side. Uh, okay, well, we could just talk about your book forever, but can you share a few more of uh, just some unexpected joys that you had from this entire experience? I, I'll tell you a little about Nadav, because he's a person, and uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that people get to know. So why don't I tell you a little bit about him? He is a real character. He had a twin brother. They were not identical. He has a twin brother. His twin brother was kind of like pretty like solid character. Nadal was a little more offbeat. He lived in his own little world. Um, he was a cardiac kid. So while his brother kind of like raced around and then collapsed, Nadav had learned to like pace himself. So he was always the last one to fall asleep at night. The boys would be tucked in and his two brothers would be snoring and Nadav would sit there just like singing. We would hear him singing um, himself to sleep, which was really beautiful. He had uh, this curly head of blonde hair which was gorgeous and lovely. He was super smart about what he was going through and really sophisticated. He insisted when we were hospitalized um, and he was not sedated, he would always insist on participating in rounds. The doctors at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia would round and they would always turn the x-ray so he could see it. One of the problems we had was a stubborn lung uh, thing. And he would always look at it and ponder it. And he would not, like, um, suffer fools. Like, when doctors tried to be condescending to him, they would correct him. So he um, he was learning to walk again. So he had these things around his legs that helped keep his legs um, strong while he was learning to walk. And one of the doctors once made the mistake of going up to him and saying, did you wear your leg huggies today? And he looked her right in the eye and he said, knee immobilizers. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
he knew what he was talking about, right? It was his body after all. And um, he's pretty stubborn sometimes, but, but you know, whatever. And uh, he loved to dance. He danced at his cousin's bat mitzvah. He danced at baseball games. He just like, it was a little walk dance, dancing away. Um, so, so that's who he was. And even the people who we met along the way did not know that part of him because in a lot of cases they saw him when he was very ill. So I wrote the book in part. So they would understand who he was. And I think it's very important that the world knows who he was because he was a pretty special kid, like his brothers, in their own way. That's Those are the moments of joy that, that I want I want to be able to share as well. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of these stories with us and for sharing Nadav with the world. I hope everyone goes out and buys your book. I know the community that listens to this show will, and I promise you're going to love it. James, tell them where they can find their book why they should read it immediately and where else they can find you to interact with you and engage with you or see you speaking or anything like that. I was just about to say that I really welcome people reaching out. Like one of the joys of writing this book, Unexpected Joys, has been reconnecting with all these communities we we either miss or we never knew, like parents in similar situations. And I did write it in large part to reach out to them and make these connections and have these conversations. So I totally encourage people to you know, certainly buy the book, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, the website is uh, morethanamemoir.com. Uh, the book's name is More Than We Expected. But if you go to morethanamemoir.com, you'll see things that I've written. You'll see conversations like this that I've been lucky to have. There's um, an opportunity to ask for um, a little gift. And what that is is um, an autographed book plate for the book, but there's also something in there that's special for Nadav that I'd love to share with people if, if you want to request it to send me your mailing address. And please use the contact form to reach out, especially if you have like a book club or an organization and you think other people would be interested in it, I'm always happy to come talk about what we went through and also more important to listen to what other people feel because I think these conversations are really valuable. Even, even you know, seven years after losing a child, uh, they can be very therapeutic. Uh, and gratifying so um, so yeah i really welcome that and then the links to all the social media stuff is on on the website it's more than a memoir at twitter and it's not twitter anymore but instagram facebook it's all there at the website and all of that will be in the show notes too of this episode so wherever you want to go okay james thanks so much for spending time talking to me today about nadav and your family and your book i'm so grateful that you reached out and that I know about this resource and I know you're going to be having an in the room session with our friends at Courageous Parents Network soon. It'll probably happen before this episode comes out, but you can go back and watch the recording of that after they do it. They're always so good, so don't miss it. I really appreciate it, Effie. And do I get to hear Ford or do I have to wait till you publish the uh I twist the publish the podcast. Yeah, well, you can hear him on every episode. Yes, you must I know, have heard but do I, him. I don't get to hear him now. You add that <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah, I add that okay, later. Well, I can't wait to <laughs> I can't wait to hear Ford because every time I listen to one of your podcasts, that makes me feel good. So It is just the medicine that we all need. Definitely. Okay. Thanks, James. Right. Thanks so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!